0: The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. A few months ago, it was about, I think, five or six months ago, there was a, a picture that began circulating on the internet of a well-known and famous person. And the reason it was circulating is because they looked and were dressed so differently than how they are almost always seen, dressed in a very specific same way. It first started circulating on Twitter and was picked up in other places highlighting this. And we have a picture of it. Um, it's a well-known person, um, perhaps one of the most recognizable people in the world, Pope Francis. <laughs> And they're like, I didn't realize Pope Francis had that swag style. I don't know what the kids say these days, right? With, with the long white puffer coat as he was out in a brisk morning in the Vatican City. And it kind of circulated online as people were commenting like, whoa, check out the Pope. How cool is this? There's only one big problem with this. It's not a real picture. Right, that's an AI-generated image of Pope Francis, and he kind of became, a few months ago, the poster child of like, hey, let's see all the fun you can have with AI-generated images of people, and so why stop with a puffer coat if you could add on the sweet shoes as well, um, you know, so... He also, in that picture, he has like two knees on his like right leg. You know, you can tell AI, it's still working on some things, right? Or why, why does he need a white puffer coat? Let's go, let's go orange, right? We could try, try that, add in, add in some shades. Or just go full multicolored jacket and see how he looks in that. Um, how does the Pope get around the Vatican City? Well, we could imagine it with this AI image on a motorcycle, uh, that we have him cruising around or, or the last one, why does the Pope always wear long sleeves? Because if you were, were to wear short sleeves, um, you would see this in the, in the last one, um, <laughs> you know, so, so there, there's this whole idea and we get that, right? Cause maybe it wasn't the thing of the Pope, but we've all probably seen something online and we've realized later, like, oh, that, that wasn't real. Right, like I I fell for it, whether it was intentional or unintentional. Right, I like I thought something was real that was actually fake, and that that same idea is how a lot of people approach the Bible today. Right, if if we can't even trust the pictures we see online, how can we trust that what the Bible says is true? And that's our topic as we continue in this Explore God series today. Is is this question: Is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? How do we how do we know? How do we understand? How can we have some verifiable proof that, that what we hold now is actually God's word and that it is true in what it says to us? And so this morning our, our outline is gonna simply be walking through the basic three truth claims that we believe as Christians about the Bible. And that's our outline for this morning. And we'll answer some of the questions and objections that often come as we go along the way. The first first point of our outline is this, is that the Bible is the Word of God. We as Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And the theological word that we use for this is the inspiration of scripture, that scripture is inspired by God, inspiration. And the the most well-known verse on this is in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says this, all scripture is breathed out, some translations put inspired there, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now when we talk about the inspiration of scripture, we don't mean it how we often use the word inspired today. Right? Like someone would be like, an artist would be like, well, I was inspired and so I painted this. So you'll get inspired when you go home today and clean out a closet. Right? I got to say, the flow is somehow how we talk about it. It's not just that Paul was in a good mood and so he started writing some things down. I was like, yeah, I should call that the Bible. That's pretty good. I had a good day today. But, but that it was the Spirit of God moving through them. So what they were producing was actually the very words of God. And so when it says breathed out, that same word breathed out, breath and spirit are the same word in the original languages, that, that the scripture is the spirit given word of God. We see this even clearer in Second Peter chapter 1, where it says this, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the spirit-inspired word of God that we have with us. There's two words that we often put along with this, this um, word inspiration, and they are verbal and plenary. The first verbal means that it's the very words of scripture are inspired. It's not just that scripture contains inspired thoughts, inspired ideas, that, the, that it talks about the message of salvation in Jesus, and that's inspired. But that the very words of scripture themselves are the words of God to us. It's not just the ideas, but Scripture itself. And secondly, this idea of plenary inspiration, or this idea of complete or full inspiration, that all of the Bible is the Word of God. I, I like to sometimes joke, uh, maybe you have or you've, you've read before, um, one of the Bibles where Jesus's words in the Gospels are in red. Right, and it's like, oh, we got to take this seriously because this is the word of God in red. This is Jesus's words. Well, I hate to break it to you, all of the Bible is the word of God, not just the part that's in red in the Gospels. It's all God's word. It's just as inspired. Every single verse, every single chapter, from Genesis to Revelation, what we have is the inspired word of God. Now, you may say, well, isn't the Bible an old book that was written over a large period of time? You are correct. It's a collection of 66 books written from approximately 1500 B.C. to 100 A.D. by 40 different authors. The two primary languages were the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek. There's some, a slight amount of Aramaic in the New Testament as well. And it is God's word, but it, it reflects the stylistic differences of the authors who wrote it. And so when you look through Scripture, if if you've ever read through parts of the Bible, you'll be able to notice, like, hey, this sounds like so-and-so, or this doesn't sound like so-and-so. For instance, if you read through the New Testament, the letters of Paul sound different than the letters of John. Why? Because they were different people. And they were writing to different audiences, and so their own personal languages flow through as the Spirit inspired them. See, sometimes think when we think of Scripture— it's like that they were sitting there praying the authors of scripture and like a scroll descended from heaven and fell on their hands and were like, oh, this is God's word. No, it didn't come down, but it flowed through them in their own writing. And that's why we can notice these stylistic differences, but all are still inspired by God. We also need to to note that in inspiration we need to look and recognize that the Bible is filled with different genres. And how different genres function will look and sound different. But it's all the inspired word of God. A large part of scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is what we call narrative. It's telling a story. It's showing the story, primarily the story of Israel and God's faithfulness and working through Israel. The Gospels are the stories of Jesus and his life here on earth. Acts is a story of the early church and what happened after Jesus in those first 40 or 50 years. And it's a narrative. But then when you get to kind of the middle of the Old Testament, you get to Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you come across poetry. Now, you remember this from your English Lit class. You read the two exactly the same. No, you don't. You recognize the genre and you understand how the genre is functioning and what it's trying to do. When you get to the New Testament, a lot of the New Testament are letters, or sometimes we call this in the Bible epistles. They're letters written to people. And so when, when Paul was writing some of his letters, he was writing to a specific people group or a specific person that he knew for a specific reason. I heard one pastor say recently, "Hey, to bring it to you, the Bible wasn't written directly to you. Second Timothy was written to Timothy, and Paul wrote it to him. Now, it is applicable certainly to our lives, but but there's specific intention behind, and we notice the differences in the audiences and the things that are addressed because of it. Lastly, we also see in genres of scripture uh, apocalyptic literature as well. Ever read Revelation and been like, what the world is going on here? Right? Or some of the prophetic books, especially Daniel, it uses extreme imagery to demonstrate spiritual realities. So it was common and still is in apocalyptic literature. Now, the amazing thing is that even though this book is written by so many men over such a large period of time, there is an amazing cohesion and consistency of the message across scripture that when you start to read it, it's not like this one book and then this one's over here and then this one's over here, but you see the overarching story of God throughout the whole thing. And you can even see this in how scripture references and mentions itself. There are approximately, I think it's about 63,000 cross-references or allusions to scripture in scripture itself. And a few years ago, there was a data scientist who wanted to say, how do I help people see how scripture is used? That it's not just a whole bunch of independent things, but that the authors are quoting back and re- using scripture itself. And so he came up with this picture, which is I just think is such a cool graph. And each of these lines represents a cross-reference, the, the, the arches, the lines on On the bottom, each individual line represents a chapter in the Bible, and each of the different colors, if you look closely, you can see the alternating colors, is one of the different books of the Bible. The New Testament, as you can see, is kind of this last third or quarter on the right-hand side here. It's not like it just ignores everything that came before But notice all of the lines pulling back to the Old Testament. Notice all the lines within the Old Testament itself. And so, yes, they may stand alone, these books written by different people, but it's one cohesive message. There's a consistency that flows throughout all of Scripture. Now, we need to to hold fast as Christians to the fact that God's word, what we have today, is the inspired word of God. We're giving a warning as to happen, what would happen in the same book in 2 Timothy if we were to ignore this. Paul says this to his his disciple Timothy. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Not your own thoughts, but preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And if you're any student of history or even a modern day understanding of Christianity, you see this happening all the time. Is people will reject the teaching of the Bible, reject the inerrancy of scripture, and wander into their own myths and own understanding of it. Um, about 10 years ago, I was at a, at a conference and it was called Progressive Youth Ministry. I was a youth pastor for 13 years. Um, and so it was called Progressive Youth Ministry. And I, I went to one of the breakout sessions. You may have heard of the rise of progressive Christianity in many of more mainline denominations, although certainly not characteristic of every single mainline church, by no means. But I was in this, in this seminar and it was um, a, a woman Producing it, who had done a survey of of high schoolers and their beliefs about Jesus. And it was just, hey, this is the reality. And I knew the people who published her book. So I was like, oh, hey, I, I know she'll be interesting. I trust the people. And so she was just kind of presenting data. And then it was about 15 of us youth pastors in the room. And she asked, hey, if one of your kids in youth group were to ask you, is Jesus God? And how would you answer them? And she actually looks and calls on me. And so I say, well, I would, I think one of the easiest places, I would turn to Colossians 1, where it talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is God taking on human flesh, and all that was true of God is Jesus. And before I'm done, the youth pastor who's hosting the conference at a very, very large church raises his hand and goes, yeah, but you can't argue that from that book because we don't even know if Colossians is actually the word of God or not. And I was like, wait, sorry, what, excuse me? And he's like, yeah, you can't. And so I I tried another one. He goes, we don't know about that one either. So I remember I I kind of sarcastically, probably a little too sarcastic, was like, tell me which book of the Bible I can use, please, and I will use it. And then she asked him, what would you say if one of your kids asked, is Jesus God? And he'd say, well, I would say, I don't know, because we don't know if what the Bible says is true or not. This is a pastor at a very, very large church. See, so you may seem like, okay, well, the doctrine of inerrance, okay, whatever. Like, it's not that important. But if we neglect the fact that what we have are the words of God, the results are catastrophic. It's not just disagreeing on issues that Christians should t- t- agree to disagree on, like baptism and end times and stuff. But if you, if you neglect that the Bible is God's word, you'll find yourself saying, we don't really know if Jesus is God. We don't know if the resurre- resurrection happened. And you've left the gospel entirely if you leave the word of God behind. See, the truthfulness of scripture reflects the truthfulness of its author. And if we stop seeing the scriptures as God's words, the results are catastrophic. And we live in a world where many put on the label as Christian, but have neglected that this book is God's word, and the results are catastrophic in their lives and in their understanding of what the Bible teaches. The second thing that that we believe about the Bible is that the Bible is completely true. The Bible first is the word of God, but second, that the Bible is completely true. The theological word that is associated with this is it's the the inerrancy of scripture, inerrancy, we believe the Bible is inerrant, meaning that it is without error or fault in all of its teaching. There's many places that we could go to, but a, a, a clear and very simple one, in John 17, Jesus says this, he prays, he says this, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, that scripture claims to be truth, and it's claimed to be the truth that is for our lives. Now, how can we, how can we have a, a greater grasp and understanding that what the Bible says is actually true? I wanna give you four arguments, real briefly this morning, that I could do. Each of these could easily be a four part sermon series, right? So they're, they will be brief. Four parts that, that help us understand that scripture is actually true in what it says. First is prophecy prophecy. Um, I don't know, and it's hard to look up exactly how many prophecies there are in Scripture. I know, you're like, you're a pastor. You don't have time to read the whole Bible every week to prep for your sermon. I had a little busy week. I'm sorry, I didn't this week. But there's about, give or take, 2,000 prophecies contained throughout Scripture, over 1,800 of which we can see specific and exact fulfillment of that the Bible is remarkable and that it will prophesy that something is going to happen and we see fulfillment of it. By the way, the other 200 aren't like they failed. It's, it's still to come, right? It's the things that are still yet to happen. So it's not like there's 200 that are failures. Two, two events that are remarkable in their prophecies. Throughout the Old Testament, there was all these specific prophecies to Israel, that hey, if you continue in sin and don't turn to God, you will be invaded by foreigners, you will be taken off into exile, but when that happens, don't worry, in a very specific number of years, you will return and come back to the land. Guess what happened hundreds of years after these prophecies started to happen? That exact same thing happened. It's one of the core events of the Old Testament. The Old Testament also, five, six, seven hundred years before Jesus' birth, started prophesying about this Messiah who was to come. The Messiah. And some of the prophecies were so specific. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. That doesn't happen every day. Right? That's a very specific prophecy. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. People would be like, Bethlehem? Not Jerusalem? Nothing good comes from Bethlehem. It's this tiny little town. What do you mean, Bethlehem? That the Messiah would escape down for his life to Egypt and then come back to Israel. Jewish people are probably like, hold up, we don't go to Egypt anymore. That went bad for us. Like, why would, why would Jesus go down to Egypt and then come back? But we see it happen. Specific prophecies that the Messiah would die a horrible and gruesome death on a cross. And what do we see? Jesus fulfilling so many of the prophecies about him. The, the prophecies show the truthfulness of Scripture. Another way to help verify this is the testimony of history. This is one that's fascinating to me. I've always been a history buff loved history as a kid, still still do love reading it. But there are other historical evidences for the truthfulness of Scripture outside of what's contained in the Bible. We'll just focus on one time period, the event of the time of Jesus' life. There's two Roman historians named Tacitus and Pliny, who, outside, they're not mentioned in the Bible, they are Roman historians who were antagonistic to Christianity and Judaism. They do not like it, right? But they write, and you can still find their historical writings. They were contemporaries in the time right after Jesus. And from their writing, they can see that there was a man who lived in Israel who was killed by Pontius Pilate who claimed to rise from the dead and has a huge following that's sweeping over the empire. And their points are, we need to kill them. We got to do something about it because this is a problem. Right? But they, they talk about, like, hey, no, this guy came, he did things, people followed him, he was killed, he came to come back to life. There's a t- thousands thousands of people who say it's true. That's not in the Bible, those are Roman historians. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus, a contemporary right after Jesus' time as well, who writes very similar things about a man who was named Jesus, who claimed these certain things, claimed to be God, died on a cross. People say he rose from the dead. That's not scripture, that's a Jewish historian who lived right after the time of Jesus. Of Jesus as well. And so we can see these historical people record events and they line up exactly with what we see in Scripture as well. So history is a testimony of the truthfulness of Scripture. The third testimony to the truth of Scripture is archaeological evidence. Archaeological evidence that's been found in, in, the, in the ancient Near East continues to back up and show that what Scripture says is actually true. And the more they find the more scripture is just reinforced. It's like, oh, hey, guess what? The Bible was right all along. Imagine that. Two archaeological findings that I find particularly fascinating. First, um, this one was discovered in the, in the 1840s in northern Iraq. I think we have a picture, picture of it. There was three different cubicle um, side things. It's called Sennacherib's Annals. And, and this is um, an Assyrian king. Who this, this piece comes from 691 BC. There's three exact things of it. They found three of them. One's in Chicago, one's in London, one's in Israel. I've seen the one in Israel. That's this one right here in a museum in Jerusalem. And on this ancient thing, this is written in Akkadian, records how this king, Sennacherib, went over to Israel, laid siege. There was a king named Hezekiah and records the battles that he had against Hezekiah. And it records exactly the same thing. If you're to open your Bibles to Isaiah 36, 37, and 2 Kings and Second Chronicles, it's the exact same story. But this is an ancient Akkadian document from 691 BC that they found discovered in what was the Assyrian kingdom in northern Iraq today. That's not the Bible. That's just something they found in archaeology. Fast forward to the time of Jesus. (laughs) They were doing some excavation um, near, near the Mediterranean coast. Up, uh, up north of Jerusalem, and they, they found there was a, a stage house that had been built, and they found as they were kind of digging down deeper that there was a foundation stone that wasn't from the 4th century from when it was built, but actually was from about 400 years earlier, right? Because if you're doing, you know, building 400, in 400 BC, you're like, hey, that thing looks good, let's keep it there, 480, right? Like, that's a good stone, why do we need to move it? Let's keep that as the foundation. And they, they started to look as they, they excavated underneath it, and they found an inscription on it for a building that was there before and it was given to one of the Roman gods and the person who was giving it, I think we have this picture up this time, I think we have it, it's from a guy named Pontius Pilate. His inscription is right there in archaeology evidence that yep here was Pontius Pilate dedicated this building in AD 30 that we see in archaeological findings. We could go on and this was found by the way in 1961 so this is a more recent discovery in history so there's all of these things as archaeologists find and dig and find ancient historical documents that shows the truthfulness and the reliability of Scripture and what we have today. Fourth, fourth way to, to understand the truthfulness of Scripture, to help back it up, is the preservation of the text that we have, the preservation of Scripture. Now, because you certainly recognize, well, if the Bible is written from 1500 B.C. to 100 A.D., we don't have that actual document today, and, and you're right. We don't. We don't have the very original manuscript documents that any of the Bible was originally built on. And you've played something like the telephone games. You're like, all right, if the Bible's that old, it certainly got confused and mixed up, and maybe the originals were true, but what we have has to have a ton of errors, because I've seen how I document things. I can't, I can't remember what I said last week. How are they supposed to remember and pass on the Bible from generations to generations? Well, Two things I would say to that. First is the variations that are contained in ancient texts, and I get to study this when you go to seminary and learn Greek and Hebrew, are extremely small. Most of the variations in the New Testament are did the original manuscript say Jesus or Jesus Christ? Right, did it say Lord or Lord and Savior? It's very small like that. And none of the variations they've ever discovered amongst any of the biblical texts change any of the message of the Bible at all. The second thing is this, there is a huge, um, a huge growth in the proximity of the manuscripts we have about the Bible from when they were originally written. There's a very small gap in history from when the events occurred, when the things were written, to the manuscripts that we have. And it's hundreds and hundreds of years closer from any other ancient figure that you have. If you read ancient history and some of the Greek poets and Greek writers, the documents you have are hundreds, oftentimes well over a thousand years after they actually lived. For a long time, that's about how close we had of the biblical record was our documents were around 800-900 AD, was the closest we had. And then in the 1940s and 1950s, the Dead Sea Scrolls happened. You may remember a hearing about this. And they went in and found copies of scripture, and specifically here, New Testaments, and, and biblical writings from the New Testament. And these were dated back to around 100 AD. So it closed the gap of literally 700 years. And so they could compare manuscripts from 800, 900 to 100, and guess what they found? It says the same thing. There's no major variation between them. They closed the largest historical gap in records in history, and it says the exact same thing. That what we have is the Word of God. You may sometimes hear people argue as well, well, the Bible what wasn't actually, the New Testament wasn't complete for hundreds and hundreds of years. There were certain books that were left out. And a popular one nowadays is that the Emperor Constantine, when he decided to become Christian, picked which books should go in the New Testament. And so what we have isn't the truthful word of God, but it's just some Roman emperor wanted to accumulate things to put over his people and place an authority over them. It makes for a great story. The problem is it's not true at all. Right, that the Bible that we have, within 50 to 75 years of its writing, we have copies of showing almost every book of the Bible contained together, recognizing its authority. In fact, 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament are seen altogether within 100 years after the original writings. And the ones that weren't included are basically the smallest books in the New Testament. And so all the Gospels, the main letters, were all included right away until the other ones were recognized later, but still well before the Romans came in and said, oh no, we're going to be Christians. See, the reality is we can trust that Scripture is true. That scripture is true. But what I, want to, what I want us to think about is scripture doesn't just claim to be true historically, right? It's kind of easy to nerd out because you can see archaeology and history. But scripture claims to be true not just about history in the past, but about you as well. Scripture claims to show the truth in your life. Hebrews 4 says this, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all were naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, the Bible, we don't just claim is historically true, but it's true about your life. And you wanna know the truth about you and who you are and the purpose of your life and what you are meant to be the best way to find it is to look to the truthfulness of God's word. They'll point out the truth for you as well. Lastly, thirdly, the Bible is our final authority. That We believe the Bible is our final authority. That the Bible is authoritative. One of the core values of our church is that it's God's truth we stand on and live by. God's truth we stand on and live by. is a core value of our, ch- of our church. See, we all, no matter of your background, no matter of your religious beliefs, we all have something that is the authoritative guide for our lives. For Christians, it's supposed to be God's word. This is the reality. For most non-religious people, the authority for their life are their own thoughts and feelings. Right? The authority that guides their life is, what do I think will make me happy? What do I think will bring pleasure? And that becomes their authoritative guide, which actually, when you start to flesh out what that means, and it sounds kind of crass and cruel to them, but what it means is you, most non-religious people, have essentially made themselves the god of their own lives, and they worship themselves. And their own thoughts and feelings are the rule book, the guidebook, the authority by which they live Their lives. But for us as followers of Jesus, Scripture is to be the authority for us. We see this because of a few different ways. Jesus used Scripture as the authority in his life. Jesus consistently and constantly is referencing back and quoting the Old Testament, which was the only Scripture that he had when he was alive. When you may know this, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, how did Jesus refute Satan's temptations? He quoted the Bible back to him. Now, I, I, I'd I surmise it to believe if Jesus needed to quote the Bible to battle temptation, perhaps you and I need it as well, right? Perhaps it would be helpful for us as well. One of the most amazing texts that when I get to heaven, I want to ask for the video and audio replay of it, is in Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus is traveling with some of his followers, and he says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning him. That he goes to the Bible and says, this is the authoritative word on me, look at how it has its fulfillment. See, the Bible is meant to be our guide for life. Psalm 119 says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm one paints this amazing picture of the human condition. It says, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, in scripture, in God's word. Blessed is that one. And the illusion is this, that he or she is like a tree planted by streams of water bearing fruit. The stream is that word of God that's always filling them up and growing, providing the sustenance. And then it says, the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind blows away. The wicked are like the golden countryside that we see in California that we know will wither and die and blow away compared to something rooted by a source of life. The Bible is the source of life for us as Christians. It's what grounds and roots us. See, as followers of Jesus, it is the Bible that, it's not the knowledge of the Bible, but it's the action and practice of it that reminds us if it's the authority in our lives or not. See, how do you know if the Bible is the authority in your life? It's not how many verses you can quote or the things you know, but it's how you live out the truth in your life. It says this in James 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That it's not just knowledge, but it's put into action that shows if the Bible is making the difference in our lives. I like to think of it this way. Do you know someone who's an incredible cook? I do. There's some of you sitting in here right now who I have been blessed by your cooking before. There's somebody, maybe, maybe it's a family member. I feel like it's always like mom or grandma, right? Or maybe it's someone else in your family who's a chef, right? Or, or just an amazing baker. Wh- whatever it is, right? You all know people. Maybe it's yourself. That's amazing, right? But you, we all know people who are like, oh, they're an incredible cook. You know what you don't say about an amazing cook? they have a great recipe book, right? You're not like, oh, you know so-and-so, they have an amazing recipe book, right? You don't say that, why? Because it doesn't matter how many great recipes you collect. Until you start to cook it, you're not actually a good cook, right? Until you bake the pie, you're not a good baker of pies. You have to actually do it. It doesn't matter how great your recipe is. Too many Christians are like, oh, I got the recipe for following life after God. It's right here. It's like, are you going to do it? I got the recipe. It's right here. I got it. You're going to put it into practice? I told you I have the recipe. I'm great. See, we have all we need right here. You have the word of God. But for many of us, we, we haven't moved from knowledge to practice. See, in a Christian whose life is under the authority of God is one who accumulates not just knowledge of Scripture, but then puts that into practice in their lives. Don't be like someone who collects recipes but never puts it into action. Know God's word and live it in your life. See, God's word is so essential for us as his followers. I know this is groundbreaking. You came to church and the pastor's telling you to read the Bible more. You're like, shock, I never would have guessed. But the reality is this, if you're a follower of Jesus, you want to see spiritual growth. You want to see maturity in your life. It will not happen like it should if your source of scripture is 30 to 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. No one at our church can preach that good of a sermon. I'm sorry, I certainly can't. None of our other people can. It will not happen from 30 or 35 minutes a week of exposure to God's word. The temptations, the challenges that you face in our world are far too great that a sermon on Sunday can simply solve it all. But you need God's word in your life regularly. Regularly for the challenges, the things that you are facing, the wisdom, the life that comes from his word. You need to be in it regularly if you want to see the spiritual growth and maturity in your life. And for some of you, you haven't seen that growth in your life because you're starving yourself from the source of growth itself. You're trying to grow, but you're not taking in the main source of growth, which is God's word himself. So if you're a Christian who isn't in God's word, I just wanna challenge you, start to make it a habit. You don't have to start with an hour a day, just start small, start with five minutes a day. You can make that, start with 10 minutes a day, you can make that happen. To start to have God's word be in your life more regularly. For some of you, maybe you're checking out Christianity, or you're still not sure where you land on the whole thing and you've never really read the Bible. And it's a big book and it can be intimidating and you don't know where to start. I just want to challenge you, if you've never read scripture, just try it and start to see what happens in your life. If you've never read the Bible before, I have two suggestions for you. First, the book of John, which is the fourth book in the the New Testament, has 21 chapters. Starting today, you could read and learn the whole story of Jesus in three weeks. Just read a chapter a day in the book of John and start to see what happens in your life. If you're curious about Jesus and who he is, start there. Or another great way to do it is on Wednesday is the first of the month. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. Read Proverbs 1 on November 1st. Read Proverbs 2 on the 2nd. And just start to read through the book of Proverbs and you start to see the wisdom of life that the Bible contains. And if you've never been in God's word before, even if you're just checking things out, I would encourage you to just read the Bible and just see what it says. See the difference that it can make even in your life. God, we thank you that you have given us your word. God, and I pray that we would be a church filled with people who do not just know God's word, but who live God's word. God, may we not be Christians who are collecting recipes, but are putting them into practice in our lives. God, I pray that we wouldn't wouldn't try and get by without the main source of sustenance that you have given to us. May we be a church. May we be people rooted and built and grounded on the word of God. That we would see it and live it as the authority in our lives. And we thank you that we live in such a time that we have your word. God, generations of Christians past would only dream of what we have at our fingertips each and every moment. God, so would we recognize the power of the word of God and the power it has to change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.